Welcome to Health Fail, where we explore failure in healthcare from the highly publicized to the never before told stories of failures that have birthed healthcare transformation and innovation. On this episode of Health Fail, we sit down with Niall Brennan to discuss how failure throughout his life and career has led to success in his present role as president and CEO at the Healthcare Cost Institute. I'm your host, Zach Jiwa. And I'm co-host Stephen Cutberth, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Health Fail. Niall, you are the current CEO of the Healthcare Cost Institute, former chief data officer of HHS, uh, and, and a pioneer of open data, uh, healthcare data, and we're really glad to be with you. So welcome to the show. How's it going, guys? I'm glad to be here. We're having fun. We're tired, I think, after, what, six days of South by Southwest? Mm-hmm. I got a the South of, by sickness. My, a my, lot my of conferencing. Jeez. <laughs> well, I'm talking to people, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to try to get you know a few more minutes out of you. We're here to talk about failure and specifically how failure has um, led to success, led to innovation, led to you know newfound beliefs, whatever it happens to be. Um, we like to talk about the personal, we like to talk about the professional, and we like to talk about maybe even the philosophical. But I like to start the show um, with uh, with kind of a simple question, and, is, and that is, how have you experienced failure in your career? Great question. Um, I think failure is actually you know, where I've ended up, where I am, uh, I was a failed researcher. Uh, I had worked at the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and the Congressional Budget Office, great places, and ended up at the Brookings Institution. I was probably in my mid-30s. And I was just completely sick and tired of writing papers that nobody read <laughs> and also you know realized that because I'd never gotten a PhD that like the kind of that sounds like hier- a total failure the, yeah the, 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 the hierarchical system in um, in research meant that you know it didn't really matter what analyses I did or what papers I wrote that some people would be like well you know he's not a PhD so I was honestly ready to uh, walk away um, from uh, health policy completely. Uh, had you know long tortured conversations with you know my wife and actually like contemplated career change. But that's a scary thing to do when you've got two young kids. So um, uh, sort of last throw of the dice, I applied for uh, an operational role uh, at CMS and uh, started off as uh, deputy director of a very small office there, the Office of Policy. A um, little bit of insider knowledge, the Office of Policy was not actually responsible for policy. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like but it led to many confusing um, conversations and phone calls with concerned citizens who had an issue with a specific CMS policy, and so they would naturally Google it and call the Office of Policy. And I'm <laughs> like, well, that's actually not what we do. Um, but really, um, you know, from that kind of personal sense of failure what the hell am I doing you know I don't even like what I do anymore I'm getting into uh, the operational environment at CMS and seeing uh, the desperate um, needs they had around uh, building 
a data enterprise, building a stronger data enterprise, having better relationships with external folks who wanted our data um, really um, transformed um, how my career and how I viewed my career. So uh, that would probably be you know, my, my, my failure. So, so there you have it. You, you end up being one of the, you know, one of the most coveted people, at least in, in healthcare data world by a complete and, and utter failure in your career. You remember, you know, was this like a Hail Mary? Okay. I'll, I'll just go see if I can get into CMS. You know, can you, can you take us back to where you were in that moment at that time? Did you, I guess, first of all, did you know you were failing or did you feel like a failure? You know, who did you call? Who did you talk to? What was the advice that you were given? Or was it, you know, was it just kind of business as usual? I'll go apply for this job. It wasn't business as usual. Uh, And then you can kind of get into semantics a little bit like, you know, did I, you know, walk around like, you know, hitting myself on the head saying, you know, you're such a failure, dumbass. Um, <laughs> maybe not, but like, you know, I think there was profound professional um, unfulfillment, mm-hmm. um, which occasionally manifested itself um, uh, as a feeling of failure. So it really was, you know, sort of a, um, a last throw of the dice. It wasn't like, you know, I'm just going to apply for another job and in two years, time apply for another job and in two years time for apply for another job because you know I had worked at the Urban Institute the Congressional Budget Office the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and the Brookings Institution so I was kind of running out of places um, (laughs) in DC that would uh, uh, that could give me a a job even though with you know with healthcare I suppose there are um, endless opportunities as as long as you're willing to uh, to broaden your search and you know a lot of credit um, uh, huge. So you're saying that government is where the failures, uh-huh. where the failures go to? No. <laughs> well, but but I'm that's kidding. actually, uh, you know, not to not answer your question, but it's a uh, it's an interesting point. So I went to the government um, because of one person, and the one person was um, uh, a woman called Karen Milgate, uh, who I had worked with uh, at the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and you want to talk about, um, you know, just really um, foundational. Uh, mentors or influencers in your life. Um, Karen um, uh, was one of those people. And again, like me, uh, she was, you know, not a traditional researcher. But, you know, what she did was she, you know, she, she, she got shit done. She executed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, one of the, you know, very um, highly regarded in terms of, you know, how to measure um, quality and advanced quality agenda. So she ran this office and hired me as her deputy director. So um, I went in because of her, because I worked for her. But again, with this, you know, not only this sense of disillusionment slash failure, whatever you want to call it, but I went in with incredibly low expectations. Mm. I was That's like, I was like, you know, damn, like this is a government job. Uh, and I remember my wife saying, well, you know, just give it a shot. If you don't like it, you can leave after two years. Yeah, and, and, and you're... the two-year problem. And I needed to get away from the two-year problem. Um, and so I went in there expecting government to be the most, you know, dysfunctional environment. And in many respects it was, but I had this mental image of like, you know, 
unhappy people filing into large meetings where nothing got done. And it was actually the polar opposite, certainly at CMS in the time I was there. And sure, there, there's always bad meetings. It doesn't matter where you are. But the, the, the sense of um, um, mission, first of all, blew me away. But the, um, I just couldn't believe that we kind of had accumulated this like core of people who you know were all like fantastically brilliant uh and focused on you know getting stuff done and you know didn't matter if we broke some rules um along the way or certainly shattered conventional government norms so people like todd park i mean the first time i went into a meeting with todd i'm like i'm like 15 minutes into the meeting and i'm like who the hell is this like crazy maniac genius? Like this is not what I expected in, you know, a, a government official. Right. And Todd was the CTO of HHS, right? Todd was the co-founder um, along with Jonathan Bush. Is. Of he's Athena still living. Athena so I say Todd is. is. Yes. <laughs> so he's still alive. Um, he's thriving. And then uh Todd did work with uh, Castlight and a couple of other companies. But yes, Todd was the chief technology officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. And then Todd became the chief technology officer at the White House. And so his remit eventually went way, way beyond. I'm sure we can get him on the show sometime. (laughs) If you listen, Todd, uh, you're welcome to join us. Could I maybe just take a step back real quick? Because one thing that we found that is is, is the personal piece that's often the most interesting and what we Mm -hmm. remember and, and really like. And I think you were a little bit vulnerable there earlier where you mm-hmm. said, um, you know, I don't have my PhD, so people are going to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And I can relate to that, honestly, uh, feelings of inadequacy, not necessarily that it's, it's right or true, but where, you know, you're like, if I don't have this, then I'm not going to really be listened to. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious when you were in that place, and, and it sounds like you also were, were figuring out what was my next step. Mm-hmm. What is it that got you through? Was it your wife's relationship there? Was it, was it friends? Was it, you know, we've talked about books or other podcasts or like, what was it in that moment that really kind of, kind of pulled you through on a personal level? Um, so, I mean, I think there was, there was still like self-belief. I mean, yeah. I've known Zach for a long time and you've known me for four days. At South by Southwest. <laughs> um, and, um, let's put it this way um on uh the day we got married my best man and cousin um um got up and to start a speech he said let's be honest everybody humility is not a word that we normally associate with Niall and the speech kind of went downhill from there <laughs> they normally so do let's yeah. just say he uh, he scored um a lot of um very very good shots uh, let's well, go to know yourself so, right yeah no so I am a confident person. I just needed to have, I was a confident person and an opinionated person. I've noticed that. In an environment that couldn't, it's not that they didn't respect my opinions, but everything in the, in that environment is filtered tr- through, yeah. like, you know, what you're, the letters at the end by and large there's always exceptions but by and large i mean just a classic thing and and again this is you know going to be so 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 strange um when people (laughs) when people listen to this but because i only had a master's degree at brookings like there was like a specific title that i literally could not have because i didn't have three letters after my name so there i was you know 
essentially mid-career, at least 10 years into my career, um, with like a very significant track record of, you know, using um, data and, and analytics to understand the healthcare system better. And I was technically outranked by brand new PhDs with no experience who had, you know, and so, you know, there are, there are, there are friends who we have in common um, uh, who um, still tease me mercilessly about uh, my, uh, my, my title envy um, at Brookings. So did you, did you, I mean, did you ever consider going to get your PhD? No. They just wouldn't let you in. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, they wouldn't let me in. Um, uh, I'm just uh, probably uh, a failure story there too. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not. I'm not a researcher. And and again, like you know, um, that this kind of gets back to um, sometimes you don't have the luxury to make the choices that you really should be making. Um, and let me explain why. So uh, I was uh, oh, an immigrant. Um, to the States. I came mm-hmm. here in 94. I won a green card lottery. And, um, and then I won a scholarship to Georgetown University to get a master's degree. So, uh, but like I came to this country like literally with a, my entire worldly possessions and goods in a, in a rucksack on my back. Wow. And when I look at the clutter in my house today, I sometimes <laughs> long um, for, those, <laughs> for, those, for those simpler times. But, um, you know, I didn't have the sophistication uh, frankly of the career sophistication of a lot of my classmates at graduate school because I didn't have the opportunities that they had so I distinctly remember the first you know class we sat around a conference room table like this about 20 people in the class it was an evening class and you know everybody went around and introduced themselves and you know person number one I'm blah 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 and you know I just worked at McKinsey for five years person number two uh, I've been on the hill person number three I worked for Optum. And it goes around and around and around. And I said, you know, got to me and I said, well, I'm Niall and I've worked in factories and I've been a bartender and I've been a mailman. So, and but, you know, I'm here a to DJ? learn. A DJ? Well, I wasn't a DJ quite. <laughs> we can we can we can talk There's about a lot that. to talk about. In this, yeah. We can we can talk about that that yeah. later. So but what I'm to, to kind of yeah. tie a knot uh, a knot on the story is um, once I got had my master's degree um, and again, I was, you know, young and about to get married, like, you know, had kids relatively young, it was like more like, you know, I need a job that, um, I need a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I need a job that's like at least loosely, you know, connected to uh, to my educational, you know, qualifications. Yep. And so that's kind of where uh, we ended up where we where we did. It's, it's fascinating too. I, one tidbit, I was thinking about it. other people we've, we've had on like the, on the podcast, MD, MD, like MBA, MD. Oh yeah, it's just it's just funny. Oh, you that, don't you don't have an MD. We're gonna, yeah, yeah, we're it's gonna funny. have to shut this down. But it's but it's funny. Like we all fall prey to that. You know, we all have that. Same, I don't have an MD. I, I mean, I, I have a master's. I don't have a PhD. But I think when you even it's you know when you're looking for someone to interview when you're who we consider mm-hmm. thought leaders, it's always about that. And I don't like that. You almost have to have that level to be considered mm-hmm. a thought leader because it's not true. But, I sit on panels and in meetings all the time where um, I am the the least educated person uh, in the room. Formal but education. Sometimes yeah. um, 
Uh, and it's funny you say formal education, but sometimes I'm the only per- person talking common sense, yeah. to be honest. Um, I remember uh, being at a meeting at the American Medical Association with the president of the AMA at that time, Nancy Nielsen, fabulous person. And um, every representative from every specialty society was there because I had just released some data that had made them very angry at me. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a trial type situation. And, you know, uh, Nancy asked me, where did I get my, my, my doctorate from? And I said, the University of Life. So, and she was like, wait, what? And she was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't have one. Yeah, but Nancy was very cool. Yeah. Um, no, it is, I don't know, I don't know that it's necessarily unique to healthcare, but it is certainly in the healthcare sphere that we, that we circulate around and, and rotate around. Um, if you have two or three init- uh, letters at the end of your name, um, you'll be revered, even if you shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And for anyone else, and I've experienced this certainly with an, with an amount of some amount of pride, um, because I have had a pretty cool career. But I have to articulate my career in order for someone to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think experience is valuable. But if I don't have if I don't have um, you know Microsoft, if I don't have State of Louisiana, if I don't have you know. Um, uh, innovation fellow at, at HHS, then who is Zach Jiwa? And it's it is really interesting um, to 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 think about how we introduce ourselves in the in the mix of being important in healthcare. Perception is everything, right? Um, there was really not much about me that changed between my pre and my post CMS. Humility days. is not your, still not so, your, your strong point, um, but you know. Looking at how people interacted with me as a whatever relatively senior, you know, government employee or looking at how they, you know, interacted with, you know, even more senior folks, the political folks was a fascinating um, personal observational anthropological pastime for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, Steve and I have talked a lot about this, about making sure that we when we do this Health Fail podcast, um, we're going to talk to important people like you, but we also want to talk to important people like patients who have experienced failure mm-hmm. in the health system. And I think um, having people from all walks of life and, and hearing them and seeing them is going to be important for, for how we think about um, failure and, and success in this space. I think that's really important. I think um, particularly in in health policy and health IT and health tech, uh, we have slipped into a very dangerous trap of um, surrounding ourselves um, with our peers. Echo and, chamber. Um, uh, we've got an echo chamber effect. Um, I don't think we uh, challenge each other enough uh, as um, a father um, of uh, a patient with you know some you know non-trivial but also you know somewhat manageable healthcare needs i can tell you i can point to dozens of examples where the healthcare system you know can only be characterized as an abject mm-hmm. failure so and i think that when we don't involve uh, you know patients in the conversation or people at the front lines uh, or do we're, we're not really serious about solving anything well, you're taking us down two paths here, and I want to go down both of them. But but let's talk about um, 
let's talk about first about healthcare as a whole. Um, well, that could be hours of conversation, but you said some really interesting things um, on a panel we saw on um, Monday, Monday afternoon. I believe mm-hmm. I don't even know what the day is today, but uh, Monday afternoon, where uh, you, Stacy Chang, Doctor Tony, uh, and I forget the uh, other young Terry Hospital Association. Terry from the American yeah. Hospital Association. Terry from Mar- Mar- yeah, there you go. Heart. Um, Was it Heart or Hospital? Heart Association? I get those two confused. Hey, sorry, sorry, Terry. <laughs> sorry, Terry. Um, you were going after um, health systems and pharma pretty heavily, and I told you before we started this podcast, I said I, I'm careful not to vilify one or or just two of the villains in healthcare because I think there's a whole responsibility loop, all fighting for the same pot of coin, and the only thing that we see is that coin going up, which is unsustainable. Talk to us about... Um, you know, maybe the salient points of, of your of your thoughts there, uh, where we're failing, and maybe what is the break point? What is the true fail point that's going to lead to innovation, success, a better healthcare system in the U.S.? Yeah. So, um, healthcare, the healthcare economy, the healthcare system is is almost defined by failure, um, and I say that. Um, from more of a, a theoretical perspective, and this is kind of healthy come 101, but the reason healthcare is the way it is is because of market failure. Information asymmetry, you know, moral hazard, uh, different things like that. Uh, but I do think that we are struggling right now with a failure of leadership and a failure of will broadly in the healthcare system. So look, there are uh, a ton of extremely dedicated people um, working really hard to change the system. Sometimes it's from the bottom up, and sometimes it's from the top down. Uh, but again, I'm a I'm a data guy, and when you look at the data, that is the trend is a unbroken um, line of of rising healthcare costs. And actually, the other important data point, and they're highly related, is the unbroken line of uh, healthcare in jobs growth over the last uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> twenty or thirty years. So, uh, I, I certainly, I agree with you wholeheartedly that um, everybody is to blame uh, right now, and I think there's a e- little even bit the, of a, even the patient. I mean, because oh no, say, no, no, I'm sorry. When we say everyone, I mean, the, I, I mean, the established include, actors. We have to include government. We have to include the payers. We have to include the providers. We yes. have to include pharma, um, and the the policy community. You don't think the patients policy are, leaders. are responsible? Um, I Employers don't, I, probably. Uh, I don't think patients. So it's a very important clarification. Everybody except patients are, are 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 at fault, and I think, you know, it's only when you put yourself. Um, um, you know, or, or travel through the healthcare system as a patient, where mm-hmm. you you truly understand um, um, the absurdity of the system, and honestly, like I think the vast majority of people, um, my view is is that the healthcare system, literally, for all our happy talk about patient centered care, literally treats some people with something approaching hostility. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. um, amount of friction 
hassle, um, um, time dislocation, and um, financial debasement uh, that people have to go through uh, to navigate the healthcare system on a daily basis is uh, nothing short of unconscionable. So, so what's the fix? What what is the thing? Is it is it purely in in the in the U.S. with a capitalist society? Is the fix is the fix not going to happen till we hit a break point of bankruptcy in the healthcare system, where you know whether it's Medicare for all or whatever your you know philosophical or philosophical or political beliefs are? But what's the break point that says where are we going to draw a line? We have failed, and now it's we're going to have the opportunity to do better. We already crossed it. Are we almost there? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we certainly haven't hit the breakpoint, um, and maybe we'll never hit the breakpoint. I mean, when healthcare was twelve percent of GDP, we were like, "This is totally unsustainable." When it was fifteen percent of GDP, we were like, "No, no, 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 we're serious." Now it's really, really unsustainable. Healthcare is nineteen percent of GDP. The smart folks at the office of the actuary at CMS just released a report that says, guess what? Healthcare's proportion of GDP is going to continue um, to increase. And it's not increasing because uh, Americans like healthcare so much that they are over-consuming it. If you actually go back to my previous point, I would say the majority of Americans, if they can help it, avoid the, even, so, You've kind of got two. You've got you've got folks who lack insurance, and we can have a, a, a conversation about that. Who are forced into avoiding the healthcare system, okay? But even folks with insurance, uh, honestly, I think try and avoid the system like the plague um, if they can, because it is such it is such a difficult, demeaning system to navigate. How many times have you heard someone say they had a good experience in healthcare? <clears throat> Not many. My dad went to Mayo for a bit, and that maybe is the only time I've ever heard someone say. Mm-hmm. And my mom kept saying how they were treated so well, but it's because mm-hmm. you're spending the money, right? I can, I can tell like you, that. I can tell you that I'm having the best experience in healthcare right now um, through a direct primary care physician yeah. and my knowledge of the system and where we where we physically set and work mm-hmm. today. Um, but you know. Do you have to have 20 years of experience and have a DPC mm-hmm. in healthcare to actually understand how to navigate the healthcare system? And that's that's really uh, endemic of the problem. And my bar as a patient and a consumer is so low right. that, <laughs> the you know, the expectations are mm-hmm. so low that, you know, I'm a member of, uh, of one medical group. And like all I really need, again, pretty yeah. healthy guy, you know, so online appointment scheduling and telemedicine. Yeah. And I'm a happy camper. You know what I mean? But we still can't do that for a lot of people um, throughout the healthcare system. So I think I might have gotten a little bit. So the, the broader point was Americans are not. We're talking about massive failure. Yeah. So. <laughs> Amer- Americans are not like the pricing problem is not due to um, overconsumption of healthcare by Americans, by and large. Okay. And there are, you know, there is trusted research that you can. Go to back up that point. The work from Ashish Shah um, at Harvard and, and many, many others. Um, the problem is healthcare in America is a for-profit industry, and people, the powerful actors in the industry, are all making 
a lot of money uh, and there are very little constraints or breaks uh, on, on how they make that money or the speed with, with which they make it. So you're right in my comments. Um, uh, I probably focused uh, on, on hospitals and drug companies. Um, they're you know, not the, the only bad actors right now, but they are actually acting in such a way that I think their behavior is um, particularly um, egregious. Um, you've got, well, let's just say egregious. I mean, mm. it, it's almost like, and you know, just so folks understand, in, in my role at the Healthcare Cost Institute, I have um, private sector health insurance claims data on about 40, 45 million people. Okay, so this is a, a population that has traditionally not been studied um, in a lot of um, in a lot of detail. And again, the dynamics of the healthcare system are important. Medicare is a price setter. Medicare mm -hmm. says, yeah. "I will pay you X dollars for Y service, and if you don't like it, have a nice time not accepting Medicare patients." Okay. Private sector health insurance plans are price takers. By and large, and we can go into all the reasons they're price takers. You know, it's a very, very, um, you know, even a large health insurance company with you know tens of millions of lives. Sure, that's a lot of people, but those lives are, you know, in any one community, and these negotiations are happening at the community level. You're in a community. Right. There's five or six or ten hospitals. And you represent one percent of their business, or four percent of their business, or six percent of their business, and we've seen this happen time and time again. I'm sure it happens in Austin. Every couple of years, there's a, you know, you turn on the nightly news and you see the story that um, insurance company X and Children's Hospital Y can't come to an agreement, and you know, in three weeks' time, Austin. Families and their children won't have access to the children's we hospital. We did it when I was at Children's Hospital here. And Cut off Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And, you know, what in, invariably happens, and maybe it was actually different in Austin, is the payer caves. Because a payer can't The payer sell, always caves. Yeah, the, because the payer can't <laughs> sell an insurance product to an employer or an individual mm -hmm. that doesn't have... The children's hospital right. as part of this network. So, so, and uh, I don't want to pick on children's hospitals. They, they, they do, they do. <laughs> oh my God, they do amazing work. But you know, um, the 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 providers hold all or most of the leverage. And then the next, the next well, if there's scarcity, I sh I shouldn't say the, the the providers always win, right? Because in a more diverse, I don't know, DC may be different than Austin. I mean, we at the time we were the only children's hospital within three hours, and we had the specialists. So mm -hmm. you know, Not we had we had the power in the right. market, and I think that there's probably other places where one single mm -hmm. you know facility doesn't have the power in the market. But there's a broader point there. Like why why is you know why why is it not perfectly fine to have a children's hospital with a catchment area that like you know maxes out at like three or four hours to get there yeah. I mean again it's the it's the want everything nature um, of, of US hospitals uh, of, of the US healthcare system children's hospitals are highly specialized places like they shouldn't be you know everywhere right. you know they are places where you take your kid when they are really really sick right. okay and if it's like you know further away than you'd like well you know you drive there if your kid is really really sick you you know you take an air ambulance or whatever it is you know yeah. um, so 
And then, you know, the other part about the dynamic is you, 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 you touched on, on competition. And competition is important, but there is less and less competition, particularly when it comes to hospital care, than ever. Um, again, folks who want to dive deep on this, they should track down the work done by uh, Marty Gaynor. Um, he's a, I think he's the Heinz Professor of Economics at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, former board member of mine, um, a brilliant academic. And there are just some staggering stats on hospital mergers and consolidations. I think there have been a, like over a thousand hospital mergers and consolidations over the last 10 years. And Marty and other economists have literally proven without a shadow of a doubt that when hospital mergers happen, prices increase mm. because competition is lowered. So and so we are seeing a lot of the effects of that in the data that my team is currently mining. And again, you have to ask yourselves, like, you know, you said, where's the tipping point? Like, you know, when do we say this? So if we observe a hospital price trend of 30 percent price increase between 2012 and 2016, or 40% or 50%, like what it, when is it right. not, what's the tipping point there for saying, we're really not sure why your prices had to increase by 50 or 60 or 70%. Yeah. So I, I, one thing I think I noticed here is that we, we've gotten a little bit negative. So we're about failure, obviously, and that's what we talk about, but I don't want to just totally depress people who are listening to this. Do you Wait, have any it's a examples? podcast about failure, and you're, <laughs> and you're criticizing me for this being negative. No, this must be an up, upbeat podcast. So, I th- I, what I what I want to know is though, uh, where is it being done well, and not even a, another country? I don't really care. Where, where do you feel like there are, even if there are small things, people who are doing uh, positive actions that are actually improving healthcare yeah, and helping? Yeah, are there any examples that we can tell people to read or to, to to listen to or to look to for for hope in this? Well. The first thing is the way healthcare is financed and delivered and structured in, in the U.S. is relatively unique um, from a, um, a global perspective. Okay, so we, we do do it differently from almost everybody else. There are always exceptions. Um, these, you know, Medicare for all conversations are, are, are fascinating. But, you know, you could look at companies like... Uh, like Germany actually have a, a system that's not too dissimilar to ours. Like people buy um, coverage from you know private health yeah. plans, private mm-hmm. regional health plans. I think you know one of the the key differences there is the you know the CEOs of those German health plans aren't making you know forty or fifty or sixty million dollars a year. Okay, um, <clears throat> from it from a U.S. perspective, and yes, I. I am a little negative right now because you know everything I see in our numbers means shows that not only are we not making progress, it's getting a little bit worse. So all that being said, um, CMMI is trying a lot of innovative new payment models. Uh, Patrick Conway, obviously, um, his incredible leadership your, your in man, North Carolina. Man crush, I felt a man crush. So, there. What is Patrick uh, Conway, North Carolina? What is his? He's the CEO of a Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina, and so he's uh, rolling out uh, uh, a whole um, 
uh, variety of um, of new uh, value-based payment models uh, with uh, okay. with providers in North Carolina. Actually, kind of late breaking news, uh, they have now entered into a strategic alignment with Cambia um, mm-hmm. Healthcare. Mm-hmm. So Patrick uh, is now um, CEO of a health plan that covers people in four that's, or five states. That's amazing. Yeah, Dr. Conway was uh, the executive director of um, CMMI. Yeah, Uh, Patrick had about eight job titles at CMS. Like he ran CMMI. He was the chief medical officer. I think he was deputy principal administrator all at the same time. And he's an Aggie. Oh, man. It's okay, though. If he's doing good work, he's someone we should look to and, you know, read and follow, which is is helpful. Let's let's pivot this conversation because I I know we've been going for a long time. but uh, the other the other track that I want to go down for just a few minutes, and I think it's it is maybe the more up, uplifting side of 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 where these conversations go for us in our podcast, and that is you, you've mentioned your kids twice in this podcast, mm-hmm. and so the question that I ask about families whenever we're talking to someone with a with a family is how do you talk about failure at home? How do you talk about failure specifically to your kids and to your loved ones, and and you know. Yeah, how do you coach them? What does failure mean, and what does the other side of, of failure look like? Is it okay to fail in your house, Niall? Um, I adopt a pretty um, a strict. Our family motto is the beatings will continue. Until <laughs> so, um, and uh, I, I also I firmly believe in the in the healing powers of blame. So those are my my two guide stars oh, as a good, good Irish Catholic <laughs> as a parent. So um, yeah, I mean, failure is everywhere, and you know, in the kind of hyper competitive, you know, well off lives that we lead, I think we can really lose uh, some perspective. So. Um, you know, my daughter has a chronic condition uh, called POTS syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And she was a straight A student her entire life, but has missed um, over 200 days of school um, over the last like two, two and a half years. And Uh so um, that has uh, meant she has had to engage in a lot of expectation uh, management regarding her college choices, uh, because you know she, along with I mean, I, you know, many kids at least with the opportunity, like think, well, I'm going to go to Harvard or some other Ivy League school or a top ten school, and uh, while she still has has good grades, when you when you when you miss that much school, it's just um, uh, impossible to uh, to to make up that gap. So it's it's like you know, it's like you're not you're not failing because you're not getting into these top 10 schools. You're actually um, excelling because you've navigated this condition that makes your life borderline unbearable at times. And you're still graduating high school. You're still choosing between, you know, four or five uh, very good, um, uh, very good schools. So, yeah. um, and I think Malcolm Gladwell would say she's probably going to come out on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and again, here's a few it, things to say it, about it. It's a, you, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about another system, <laughs> that, that is that's, that's a different uh, podcast. That's our new podcast yeah. called <laughs> Education <laughs> Fail. No, edu- 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 you should trademark that. Uh, Get the website. I, I don't know how 
Um, I think there's going to be a crash in, in third level education. I really do. It's unsustainable when, you know, every college is is getting to be 50, 60, oh, yeah. 70,000 a year. Normal, not only normal Americans can't afford that, like people who like, you know, think they're doing pretty well can't afford that. So um, I'm hoping it crashes before my, my 12 year old and, and youngers get there. But yeah. Anyway. So, um, so, you know, you do have to teach your kids about failure. You have to teach your kids about, about like grit and, that's a good resilience word. Mm. and you know there have been studies showing that um kids today um you know um lack uh some some grit so you know we have to have um real talk conversations about you know uh, resilience uh uh in, in our house yeah. and um we hope it you know results in them becoming um you know well-formed responsible young adults good well listen Niall I appreciate you joining the show today I think we're uh, about out of time but uh, appreciate you coming all the way to Austin Texas just for um, health fail and we're going to take you to eat some barbecue next does that sound good sounds delicious thanks so much thanks Thanks for your time. time